And welcome, one and all, to episode 106 of... Wait, 106? Ah, I fucked it all up. That's amazing. All right, hang on. Let me... (laughs) That's terrible, man. That is just absolutely terrible. We're going to redo the opening, but feel free to fuck this up and, you know, or chop it up and make it the intro to the show, because that was pretty fucking hilarious. But I just totally jacked that up. (laughs) I'm reading the complete wrong fucking thing. (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. Alright, all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 206 of the SLS cast. Yes, this would be the slang terminology episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that the slang terminology for the urban part of the greater Seattle area is the 206. Yes, and with that hip urban slang terminology i of course am matt and coming to us all the way from sunny california would be our resident sony employee tim and i would love to talk to you more about urban slang but i <laughs> i i can't get my mind so during the pre-show we were talking about groceries and uh <laughs> in the particular store that matt likes to shop i, I guess it's safe can we say it here where where you shop i I mean i don't care i I mean it's not like (laughs) i don't i don't think we have enough people listening that are going to go oh quick send this shit to the aldi headquarters and get them in (laughs) trouble for talking about aldi on a show that mentions things like piss and shit and stuff Uh, yeah it's aldi a-l-d-i we were talking about matt's weekly grocery list (laughs) <laughs> that he takes that his wife takes with her to Aldi and all the great things they purchase and at the end of the conversation before we started recording the episode Matt did a little jingle that I just can't I that I am just hung up on completely because uh, do you remember how you how it went it sounded it sounded well rehearsed and I would love to actually have it on the show because we were, we were saying that <laughs> It, you know, it talking about really well rehearsed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk, talking about uh, you know your grocery shopping is a sexy talk <laughs> for a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, because that's that's what I was saying. You know, do, talking about discussing groceries. You know, that's what makes all the girls' panties drop. I mean, you know, that's what they want to hear. Yeah. yeah, I mean, modern dudes get together and talk about the grocery lists. They want to know what kind of hot dog buns you're getting, and you know what kind of turkey we will be having for thanksgiving but tell us that jingle i I really want to hear that jingle i'm building it up so hopefully you remember it (laughs) i remember it i just don't think it's as good as you think it's gonna be (laughs) oh my god okay know what i mean the chicks will cream for grocery lists now that's what it was i was just kind of making fun of the greased lightning thing but to add on to the you know things about grocery lists and panties dropping i 
you know, I thought it was funny in the moment, but now we've built it up and I've had to explain it. I don't think it's going to be as funny as you think it is, but okay, we've done it. It wasn't. I mean, did, did you mention the creaming <laughs> thing, the, the underwear cream? I, I, I remember, I specific, that's the one thing I specifically remember is the underwear cream. And you, you omitted that said, from your what I mean. lightning round. I didn't know. I said, know what I mean, the Chicksel cream for, for grocery lists. That's what I was saying before we started. And I just mentioned prior to that that us discussing grocery lists, you know, that's what makes the girls' panties drop. Well, you're absolutely right. It did sound better about five minutes ago. <laughs> literally. Literally five literally. minutes and six seconds ago. <sighs> oh, well. Anyway. Well, speaking of groceries, oddly enough, I was wanting to ask you about this on the show. So you bring, us talking about grocery stores fits perfectly because... We had a little, me and the significant other, we did. We had a little grocery store back and forth predicament uh, that went on for the past couple weeks, and it all revolved around macaroni and cheese, the Kraft brand. Now, are you a macaroni and cheese guy? Do your children love to eat macaroni and cheese as much as 20, 30 some odd year old women do? Well, I must say that we do love us some good boxed macaroni and cheese however we despise craft brand now it has nothing to do with anything that they did or any kind of political stance or anything it has to do with uh when jen and i had first gotten together we were late night shopping at walmart and they uh, and, and we wanted, for whatever reason, we wanted some macaroni and cheese. I don't even remember what the, what the experience was that required us to need macaroni and cheese at, late at night at a Walmart. But we get there and, uh, Jen was really big into the thick and creamy stuff. And so we're looking at the, the craft whatever brand and it was something, something like, I don't know, this was 15 fucking years ago. And, and it was, I don't know, something like, 40 cents 45 cents or something like that and then right next to it was the great value thick and creamy macaroni and cheese thing and it was like 12 cents and so jen was like i just don't i just don't see spending 50 cents a box i'm like sweetheart it's just a i mean we're looking at two boxes here it's gonna be a buck she's like i just don't want to spend a damn dollar so where I was like, all right, well, let's get this great value brand, whatever. Uh, I didn't think anything of it. So I go and, um, we bring it home and, um, I cook it up and I cook the, the boxed macaroni and cheese a certain way. I have a very specific way that I make, um, boxed macaroni and cheese. <laughs> of course you do. And of course you I do. do. It's, I do. <laughs> look, you don't look like me without, with w- just eating food willy nilly. Well, maybe some people do. But not me. <laughs> you now, have to add the butter, but not just any butter. You do, butter. but you don't. But the see, that's Aldi just it. Butter. You don't put. You don't. You don't put the. Um. You don't put the whole stick of butter in there. Like it says. Um. You, you only really need about two thirds of the amount of butter that it says to put in the box. So you, you it's stuff like that. You got to make sure you're constantly monitoring the macaroni and everything. Wait, Anyways, wait. But so, are you saying that you actually put the whole stick of butter into your macaroni and cheese? 
No, no, no. It says oh, like for two okay. boxes, for two boxes of macaroni and cheese, um, it says it, it would be the equivalent of one stick of butter for those two boxes. So I guess it's what half a stick. Um, but you don't need that much, and so you have to really, you have to really cut it back. It's about two thirds that of whatever the amount is that they want you to put in, and you don't use two percent. You make up for that by using whole milk. So uh, at any rate. Now that we've turned this into boxed macaroni and cheese cooking with Matt and Tim, um, so at any rate, so we make this, so we, so we make the macaroni and cheese, and it is the best goddamn macaroni and cheese from a box that I've ever had in my life. Seriously, ever. We have, and because it's fucking Walmart, you know they're not going to change anything because they're cheap as shit. And they haven't changed in 15 years. They have not changed the recipe, and of course now it's probably up to like 40 something cents a box or whatever. But a, a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese is almost a dollar now. So we go and uh, get a few boxes of the great value brand, thick and creamy macaroni and cheese. And we we always have a few boxes on hand. Okay, back to my story now. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. You had a story here. So, uh, the significant other, she wasn't feeling well, so she was like, you know, I really want, uh, this was a couple weekends ago, I really want Kraft macaroni and cheese. Go and get me some macaroni and cheese, the standard kind. So I'm like, you know what, I have to go to the grocery store anyway. I have to go buy my toilet paper. It's what we call Tim shopping, where nothing really makes sense, but there are things that we all need. Like macaroni cheese, toilet paper, and a two-liter thing of soda. (laughs) And maybe some ham (laughs) mixed in for good measure. So I get to the grocery store. I'm carrying the 72-roll toilet paper thing. And then I'm looking at the macaroni and cheese. And I see the standard craft box macaroni and cheese. And then next to it, on the other shelf, I see deluxe macaroni and cheese. And I think to myself, you know, this it's more expensive. It's got to be better. It's got to be better, of course. So I get uh, two boxes. I, I already see where this is going, Tim. I think anybody who loves macaroni and cheese knows exactly where it's going. <laughs> no, no. Here's 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 where you messed up. I can already tell you right now. Here's where you messed up. You started the story with uh, the SO wasn't feeling very well. And so that means she wanted something In specifically... Yeah. To comfort her. And for her, that particular little comfort food is regular craft macaroni and cheese. Well, thanks for pointing out the flaw in my storytelling, Matthew. No problem. <laughs> I just, you know, <laughs> we've been going on for 11 minutes about macaroni and cheese. <laughs> so I buy, the del- I buy two boxes of the deluxe macaroni and cheese. The one is like... Cheesy macaroni and cheese by Kraft Deluxe. And then the other one was like a garlic, white cheese, whatever. That was mainly for me. So I, <laughs> I come home with the, with the toilet paper and I'm like, hey, yeah, I got the toilet. I'm, I'm making it sound a lot more, a lot, much sexier than really what actually went down. But I was like, hey, baby, I got the toilet paper you asked for. I got 72 rolls just in case. Uh, I got this, I got that, and I got your macaroni and cheese. And I, and you know, I thought I was like being Joe Cool, not Joe Cool, but Joe saved the day. And I bought her the big box deluxe one, and I kind of toss it over to her. It hits her in the face, and she's like, "You already <laughs> pissed off that I hit her in the face with a box of deluxe macaroni and cheese." Until she looks at it and realizes I bought 
the not good kind of Kraft macaroni and cheese, and it turns out the deluxe kind is the kind that is not the powdered cheese form, right? But it's it the is can like cheese or packet, yeah, yeah. It's like the liquid, like nacho cheese. And she started bitching at me. I, I mean, she wasn't feeling well, and I thought I made her feel even less well. Like, I thought she could have had a heart attack right then, and I would have been at fault because I bought her the wrong goddamn box of Kraft macaroni and cheese. Well, that would not have been a good time for her to die either, because with the imprint of the box on her face, you know, foul play might have been suspected. So that's, you know, let's just be glad she didn't die. <laughs> right? And so and so, she she died uh, she died a box a bo- uh, with, from a box of the head. Box what, what force, of box force trauma? Yeah. Of box force uh. trauma. It was a Kraft macaroni and cheese. Yes, it was. It was the deluxe kind. Oh, the horror. Oh, how horrible. That's the worst way to die. By the deluxe Kraft macaroni and cheese. Needless to say, again, it's like the the opening of the show. This is going to build up to absolutely nothing, but I basically was was forced. She didn't force me. I just felt bad. I had to eat the whole pot of the deluxe macaroni <laughs> and cheese. <laughs> I could just see you there sad, you know, just as a sad thing, sitting sitting on a throne of toilet paper while she's just pissed at you, daggers in her eyes, and you're just, I'm so sorry. As you're scooping it up with the big wooden spoon that you use to actually stir the macaroni and cheese. Just sitting there in the pot, you know, and then your hand. Oh, what a visual. But then last weekend. Last weekend. Oh, no, there's more! (laughs) There is more. more. Quickly, because I I have news of the weird that I want to get to, and it's not going to take that long, but uh, I do want to get to it. But last weekend, she went to the grocery store, and she wanted to buy, she wanted to make broccoli tuna mac. I think that's what it's called, but, you know, it's the macaroni cheese with broccoli and tuna fish. And she got the the Kroger Ralph store brand, and it turned out she, too, got the nasty wet kind <laughs> so she had to go back and <laughs> so she did it to herself so it, ladies and gentlemen please read the box this all here is a psa announcement from the sls cast read the box before you buy craft macaroni and cheese or just macaroni cheese in general because i don't want you to go through what i had to go through gentlemen especially for you when you have to buy this for your significant other in particular uh do you have anything else to say in regards to macaroni and cheese matt i do not <laughs> all right and um, i'm gonna just well quickly... i will say this hang on I, just to throw it in i do i actually i did realize that the um the great value thick and creamy brand is also powdered it is not the uh creamy you know it's not the whatever liquidy stuff <laughs> yes creaming yes let's do it again there you go the chicks will cream for great value, <laughs> thick and creamy macaroni and cheese on your grocery list. All right. So uh, my news of the weird, way over time, I know. But th- this is worth it, I think. Um, a little bit of a Disney Muppet news via io9.gizmodo.com. And the title of this article is, Here's Why Disney is the Proud Owner of MuppetFucker.net. Written by Beth Elderkin. <laughs> And real, I'm just going to read the first few little paragraphs here. It does say this. Disney prides itself on being the happiest place on Earth. 
But that probably doesn't mean a happy ending. It was recently discovered that Disney owns the domain MuppetFucker.net. However, the mouse isn't trying to protect his wholesome family image against the rising tide of Pornhub oddities. It's all because of one DJ from the early 2000s. YouTube Muppet researcher Joshua Gillespie recently shared some findings from a dive into Disney's Muppet-related domain names after coming across one little gem. Quote, It was an oh my god and then laughing for about five minutes uncontrollably. End quote. Gillespie told io9, Quote, Because I'm thinking Disney, nice, super friendly. I know the Muppets can be pretty vulgar, but just knowing that Disney owned it is what made it the funniest. End quote. The response was joyous. After a tumultuous week in politics combined with bigoted attacks and fear of even more bigoted attacks, knowing that Disney was sitting on MuppetFucker.net was a well-deserved breath of fresh air. But why do they own it in the first place? Turns out Disney didn't actually register it themselves. Gillespie said further research shows the domain was previously registered by the Jim Henson Company in 2001. This would mean Disney had acquired it along with all the other non-Muppet fucker <laughs> domains when they bought out the company in 2004. And all quotes there. Do check it out. Uh, the rest of this article, there's quite a bit more via io9.com. Here's why Disney is the proud owner of MuppetFucker.net. Classic. And, and I did just, I tried it. I had to try it just for shits and giggles. And it says server not found. If you go to MuppetFucker.net, it says server not found. Is either Kermit the Frog or Mickey Mouse, like, shaking its head and maybe wagging a finger <laughs> at you? Nope. Just a simple server not found. That's That's all I've got. And there you go. Woo. All right, so real quick, we have uh, checking the old email sack, as it were. You two can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, we have a Twitter follower to mention, and if you would like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that by following us at the SLScast. Uh, turns out uh, Upper West at the Upper West is now following us. So thank you there, Upper West. Um, we appreciate your follow. That is... Uh, all we got there. So I guess now we can go and do the real news. What do you say? Let's do it. All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. <laughs> I'm going to lead off really quickly here uh, from HollywoodReporter.com by way of Mike Barnes. Lupita Tovar, actress in the Spanish-language version of 1931's Dracula, dies at 106. Uh, this article is dated the 13th. Uh, the Mexican film legend was the mother of Imitation of Life star Susan Conner and grandmother of screenwriters Chris and Paul Weitz. Yes, that's right. She died uh, Saturday, which would have been the 12th. Um, and let's see here. Uh, she, yeah, she was married to Czech-born producer and Hollywood agent 
uh, Paul Koner, and who represented the likes of Greta Garbo, John Huston, Lana Turner, Ingvar Bergman, Yul Brenner, David Niven, Billy Wilder, and Charles Bronson from 1932 until his death in 1988. So basically, this is a woman here, and it's pretty. It's actually a pretty lengthy article, so I'm I'm not going to go too far into it. Um, but aside from having uh, us having the good fortune to have just recently watched 1931's Dracula, so we can actually be familiar with her. Um. Uh, she is obviously part of that literal golden age of Hollywood, um, even though tangentially. And just to to know that there's that kind of a source um, that's gone always makes me sad. But it's nice to know that she does have uh, grandkids. She's got um, a family that helps her legend live on, and hopefully we will get um, we will get. We'll be able to keep the information that she knew and the people and the things that she was able to find out and the stories that she can tell in her filmography, of course, um, will be something that can be researched. And so we'll at least have a tie to that generation. And that is what I have to say about that. Tim, anything that you would like to add there? That's crazy timing, man. Yeah, we just learned about her here a month ago or less than a month ago now, uh, and it's sad to hear that, but at least she does have a, a little bit of a filmography that we can always go back and watch to uh, learn more about her performances. So, But yeah, uh, sad to hear about that. Very cool. All right, what do you got for us, sir? All right, I'm going to knock out two pieces of news. First up, via BBC.com, Robert Vaughn, man from uncle actor, dies aged 83. And it says this, actor Robert Vaughn, best known as the secret agent Napoleon Solo in The Man from Uncle, has died aged 83. Vaughn was also famous for his role as Lee in The Magnificent Seven and television roles in Hustle and Coronation Street. The actor died after a battle with acute leukemia, his manager Matthew Sullivan told the BBC. Vaughn died in New York on Friday morning, surrounded by his family. David McCallum from the hit TV show NCIS, who was Ia Kuriken, starred alongside Vaughn in The Man from Uncle, told TVLine.com he was, quote, utterly devastated, end quote, by the news. Quote, Robert and I worked together for many years, and losing him is like losing a part of me. My deepest sympathies go out to Linda and the Vaughn family, end quote, he said. Vaughn had only recently finished two projects, an appearance on Law & Order SVU and a starring role in the upcoming film Gold Star about a young woman caring for her dying father. Famous films Vaughn worked on included Bullet and Towering Inferno, both with Steve McQueen, and he took the role of the villain in Superman 3. End all quotes there. R.I.P. Robert Vaughn. Again, he passed away at the age of 83. Next up, via TechCrunch.com, is Netflix Disney's next big buy and is Reed Hastings its next CEO? This is written by Peter Sathy, or Xathy, uh, C-S-A-T-H-Y is Peter's last name there. And the article says this, Last month, Netflix crushed Wall Street's expectations with its Q3 earnings and surprisingly spry international subscriber growth, but make no mistake, it's all-out war in our internet-driven and increasingly mobile first media 2.0 world of OTT premium video, 
And Netflix is directly in the line of sight, invulnerable both short and long term. AT&T, in the most audacious bid to challenge Netflix to date, just dropped its bombshell $85 billion acquisition of traditional media institution, Time Warner. The telecom company ultimately will package and feature Time Warner content in new ways in its soon-to-launch $35 per month DirecTV Now service that will showcase live, linear premium television channels that Netflix doesn't have. AT&T will also exert control over its newly bought and highly strategic content to restrict and even withhold that content from others. Content is king, after all, in the ever-growing, seemingly endless list of tech-driven OTT distribution platforms increasingly use exclusive premium content as the primary hook to break through the noise and lure us in. That goes for Netflix itself, which recently announced a goal of 50% of its content consisting of exclusive originals. And that goes for all major behemoths in OTT wannabes vying to unseat Netflix, which includes Hulu, Amazon Video, Verizon Go90, YouTube's Unplugged service, and both Apple's and Facebook's inevitable premium OTT video services. And I'm skipping a few paragraphs here to where it actually talks about Disney. In Netflix, Disney would get the mother of them all, the largest global OTT video footprint, and the one premium OTT brand that is universal. Oh yeah, don't forget to sprinkle in Netflix's invaluable data platform that remain a complete mystery to virtually all traditional media execs. Even mighty Disney on its own can't build that package. And despite its rosy Q3 numbers, Netflix ultimately needs a buyer. Netflix faces fundamental long-term existential business challenges of its own. Its singular content-focused subscription-based business model can't compete with the complex, multifaceted, multi-revenue stream business models of AT&T, Amazon, YouTube, Google, Verizon, Apple, and Amazon. So Disney and Netflix are logical dance partners. The article does go on for quite a bit more, and I did skip over uh, some other fascinating data information regarding content and content providers. I guess that's what we get for pulling news from TechCrunch.com. It's going to sound very techy, and I hope you folks out there did follow it in some way. In a nutshell, what I was trying to get at, and I think what this article was trying to get at, if Disney buys Netflix, it will be the biggest content streaming platform. I mean, not only does Netflix have a strong reputation, but it is a known brand. So if Disney purchases it, all of Disney's content's gonna be on there. So everything you might see on the Disney Channel, all the Disney movies, which Disney also owns Marvel, for example, Star Wars, that could all trickle down and appear on Netflix streaming. So that would be a behemoth of a streaming platform if Disney were to buy Netflix. Matt, what do you think? Do you think that would be a good idea, or do you think Netflix and Disney should stay away from each other? Well, OTT, just jumping in to fill in some gaps here. OTT means over-the-top. That is the delivery platform when a network um, or any kind of provider gives you something without going through an ISP or a mainframe. Um, in terms of... Um, so like HBO 
not uh, not going through its, any of its cable providers to, to give you access to HBO Go so that you can stream it. That's OTT, or over the top. Netflix does it. Hulu's doing it now, although Hulu doesn't technically count because Hulu's owned by all the major networks, or at least two or three of them. It's a partnership deal. Um, but Disney is definitely in more in a uh, in a different league than Netflix is because Disney is trying to figure out how best to diversify. And so, for example, they've got to deal with Netflix for all of the Marvel stuff and for all of the movies that Disney's ever done uh, and opening that catalog, which all came into play this year. However, um, they've kind of, I don't want to say reneged, but they've also kind of switched gears a little bit and all of their network content. So things like Disney channel stuff, uh, that's current run is now going to be on Hulu. So, and that stuff kicks in next year. Um, so I don't know what they're thinking right now, but they're definitely playing the field. I think Netflix, as I've been saying for about a year now, is basically trying to turn itself into a network. Um, yeah, whatever kinds of streaming deals they can get, I'm sure they'll always keep that content on hand, especially for the back end where people still like to do DVDs for whatever reason. Um, but they're clearly focusing more and more as they, as you mentioned in the article, they're trying to get a 50% originality rating so that this way or originality catalog, um, so that they can just, because anything they do on their own, they own forever and they don't have to worry about it. So it behooves them to just provide amazing content all the time so that they'll keep their subscribers because if they turn into a great network that people want to watch, then who cares? They've got whatever they need to to run and they can do that through their subscription fees. Also, if they do turn into a network that people want, then as cable continues to go down, then it will bring a new shift of new subscribers to them that they don't already have. Um, this also would eventually hopefully make them uh, look good to people like Disney, but right now Disney gets to play the field. So I don't really see this happening anytime soon. Um, if at all, but sure it could happen. And I personally would love it because I want to see everything Disney has and I want to see it on Netflix. Um, so I guess that was the long way of saying I'd at least like to see it, but I don't think it's going to happen right now. All right. Well, this will be my last piece of news here from Deadline.com, since we're discussing buyouts anyway. Uh, from Deadline.com, by way of David Lieberman, uh, Carmike investors approve AMC's $1.2 billion takeover. Await Justice Department OK. Yes. Uh, let's see here. The offer won support of more than 86% of the shares voted at a meeting in Georgia. They equal about 72% of Carmack's outstanding shares. In an advisory note, shareholders, uh, let's see here. Oh, sorry. C Carmack CEO David Passman says he's, quote, pleased, end quote, with the result, which will create, quote, significant value for investors and a, quote, an even more compelling movie going experience to more guests in many more locations around the country, end quote. Uh, let's see here. And, of course, AMC is basically looking at getting all this to expand their market band, but they also want to upgrade all of the theaters that Carmike uh, has. Um, I personally am not a big fan of AMC overall, so I'm not sure I want them extending their brand. Uh, but for, just for... Um, 
but just for kind of thoroughness's sake, they did try and do a $1.1 billion offer, but it was turned down. And so back in July, AMC upped it to $1.2 billion. So, hey, what, what, what's gonna, you know, um, we'll, we'll see how that's, how it all turns out. But what do you think, Tim? Do you think it is good that AMC is now getting even more theaters? Or do you think they should focus on taking care of what they have right now? I guess it's hard for me to say because the last, ever since I moved to the co- uh, to well, I guess I've been living by the coast for almost five years now. But since I live close to the beach, I've changed movie theaters. And I used to rag on AMC, the AMC that was in Burbank that I would go to uh, every weekend. Mm-hmm. God, some of those theaters, unless you went into the IMAX theater or the Dolby Atmos theater, those theaters were usually looking pretty nice. We were kept up. But these other theaters, the sound sucked, the seats sucked. But since I switched theaters, I've noticed quite a bit of difference. So I don't know if it's because of the area that I am in that these theaters are a little bit nicer. The sound is better. The screens are better taken care of. The seating at least doesn't have cum stains all over them. Or if they're actually starting to take better care of all their theaters. If that's the case, then sure, I mean, why not expand and keep up the quality work? But if not, if I, it's just based on, like, where I am living, they don't really need any other theaters. The theater that I go to has 18 screens, probably between 15 and 18 screens. One is a Dolby Atmos theater, or the equivalent to a Dolby Atmos theater, which has a premium and the other theater is an IMAX theater. And so my only guess is that if they're going to be expanding and making more theaters, they're not going to be making theaters like the one that I go to. More than likely, they're probably going to be buying out older theaters, like smaller theaters that are like in little shopping centers uh, that maybe have like four or five screens and kind of retrofitting those theaters to become more modern. And if that's the case, then that's not going to work because there's another theater which again, they bought out another smaller theater and it became an AMC and the modern retrofitted uh, speakers just, it doesn't work for that type of environment. So I guess uh, what I'm trying to say is that it depends how it's going about. Like if they're actually building brand new buildings or converting a theater of a uh, of a similar size, then sure, that's okay. But if they're trying to go in and retrofit smaller theaters, crappier theaters into these prime theaters, then I don't think that's going to really cut it due to the quality. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of this idea. I think they still have a lot of work to do with their own theaters and trying to acquire even more. I mean, I understand why they want to, you know, why they want to expand their brand globally um, or even throughout the United States. But at the same time, I, I truly feel that overall they still need to work on their own theaters before they start trying to retrofit or uh, repair a whole nother set of theaters. So, um, because with that will come very quickly an increase in the price of tickets and stuff. And yeah, I don't know. Not a big fan of this, but I guess time will tell. And that is my news, sir. So bring us home on the news. Alrighty, my last few pieces of news. I know, Matt, this was a big surprise for you via thehollywoodreporter.com. Hayao Miyazaki plans one last anime feature. This is written by Gavin J. Blair, and it says this, The iconic Japanese director's last film may be his first 
using CG animation. The 75-year-old Japanese anime master spoke about his plans on NHK, Japan's public broadcaster on Sunday evening on a program entitled Owarani Hito Miyazaki Hayao, which translates as Hayao Miyazaki, the man who isn't finished. Miyazaki has been working on a CG short called Boro, the Caterpillar, that is scheduled to be shown at the Studio Ghibli Museum in Tokyo. But Miyazaki said Sunday that he's not happy with the results, and he plans to turn the project into a full-length feature. The legendary anime director has shared his ideas with Toshio Suzuki, current head of Studio Ghibli and producer of Miyazaki's biggest hits. Suzuki spoke during the program about how his longtime collaborator has been struggling to master CG animation techniques after spending his life hand-drawing his films, saying, quote, Ghibli will carry on as long as Miyazaki continues to make films, end quote, said Suzuki. Miyazaki said that he is, quote, ready to die, end quote, while working on the film. He has typically spent up to five years on his productions, though the use of CG would speed the process up. The director announced his retirement at the end of 2013, insisting it was his final, this time after repeatedly coming back to filmmaking following previous announcements he was to quit. Uh, and lastly here, it mentions that The Wind Rises from 2013 and Ponyo 2009 were Miyazaki's last two productions. End all quotes there. Do check out the article, hollowreporter.com, Hayao Miyazaki plans one last anime feature. Matt, do you have any quick comments, questions, concerns about that piece of news? <gasps> Shock. Oh, what? He's coming back out of retirement again? No. The hell you say? Oh, my God. Like, anybody even fucking cares at this point. Man's done this, like, 27 fucking times. So, um... You know, I, I have a feeling somehow he will figure out a way to come back from the goddamn grave. I got one more thing. Hang on. Don't start piling on the dirt yet. And it'll be That's awesome. Theaclider.com. Robert Redford announces his retirement from acting. Craig, this is written by Craig Byrne. And this article says... Robert Redford, whose professional acting career launched over 55 years ago with a handful of high-profile theater and television guest appearances before rocketing to film success with Inside Daisy Clover and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, has revealed his intentions to retire from acting in a new interview with his grandson Dylan hosted at the Walker Arts Center's website. Quote, I'm getting tired of acting, end quote, Robert said within the conversation, Quote, I'm an impatient person, so it's hard for me to sit around and, and do take after take after take. At this point in my life, age 80, it gives me more satisfaction because I'm not dependent on anybody. It's just me, just the way it used to be. And so going back to sketching, that's sort of where my head is right now. So I'm thinking of moving in that direction and not acting so much. End quote. Redford will continue to, to direct and champion independent voices within his Sundance Film Festival. He also has two acting projects that are still in the works. A love story for older people who get a second chance in life titled Our Souls at Night with Jane Fonda. And, quote, a lighter piece with, K, uh, with Casey Affleck and Sissy Spacek, and quote, called Old Man with a Gun. Quote, once they're done, then I'm going to say, okay, 
That's goodbye to all of that. And then just focus on directing. End quote. He said... Uh, the article does go on. Matt, any uh, questions, concerns, comments on Robert Redford announcing his retirement from acting? I think this one, it's a surefire thing that he's not going to be coming back after these two movies. <laughs> um, I, no, I would agree with that. And um, you know what? Good for him. He has he has done what he wants to do. He has achieved a hell of a lot in front of the camera. Um, it doesn't sound like he has ruled out things behind the camera. Um and so that's going to be great as well. He so he still has the ability to do uh, pr- producing, uh, directing, anything that he wants to get involved with in that regard. Um, you know, some more power to him. I hope that he um, finds. I hope that he does find the happiness that he's looking for. And I will be sad that he is gone, but uh, in terms of being in front of the camera, because I think he's a hell of an actor. Yeah, he's earned it. But yeah, I mean. Good Lord, he's had a 43, 44-year career. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm, uh, it's, it's disheartening. And I, like you, I'm definitely inclined to believe that this is legit. So, Well, I have a hard time believing that in another 40 years, Marvel movies will be retiring, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, so the last piece of news for me and... For the SLS cast via the playlist.net. More technical news, but I think all of you will find this somewhat interesting. Colin Trevorrow's Star Wars Episode 9 will be shot on 65mm film. This is written by Kevin Jaggernoth. What an epic last name that is. Jaggernoth. Or maybe it's Jaegernoth. Uh, yeah, it's probably Kevin Jaegernoth. And it says this, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, will be hitting the big screen soon, and it's going to look crisp and huge with the filmmakers shooting the project on the large format Ari Alexa 65, which boasts dazzling 6K resolution. Thus, it was a bit of a surprise when it was revealed last year that for the next chapter in the Star Wars saga, Rian Johnson's Star Wars Episode Eight, he'd be going to old-school 35mm for logistical reasons. However, when it comes to Star Wars Episode Nine, the franchise is going to get big once again. Today, Kodak announced that in their processing facility in the UK, they've added the capability to handle 65mm, and one of the projects listed to use Kodak 65mm stock is Star Wars Episode Nine. John Schwartzman will be reteaming with director Colin Trevorrow following Jurassic World to lens the project, and for both, it'll be a return to 65mm, which they partially used on the dinosaur blockbuster, though it sounds like Episode 9 will fully utilize the format. And that's not all. As Kodak reveals that Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express in Disney's The Nutcracker in the Four Realms, directed by Lass Halstrom, will also be going 65mm. And let's not forget that next summer, Christopher Nolan will be delivering his World War II story, Dunkirk, in the grand style as well. Additionally, some segments of Xavier Dolan's The Death in Life of John F. Donovan will be shot in 65mm, and Brady Corbett's upcoming musical Volux will also use the format. While the large format revival has been driven early on by Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino, it's promising to see it being used on blockbuster-sized efforts, too. 
If this is the path filmmakers go down instead of 3D to add more bang to the movie-going buck, I'm all bored. And hopefully it will see more cinemas keeping a 65mm projector handy so we can see these movies as intended. The article, again, goes on from there. Again, that was from theplaylist.com. Colin Trevero's Star Wars Episode Nine will be shot on 65mm film. I think this is cool. I do agree with the writer, Kevin Yeagernoth. I would rather see blockbuster movies utilize large format film opposed to 3D. I personally think that Disney movies, especially the Marvel movies, suck at 3D, watching them in 3D. Exceptions being uh, Ant-Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Doctor Strange. Now, all the Marvel movies would look better on large format film in a large theater. I would rather see that. But of course, with Star Wars, we're probably going to get both. We're probably going to get 65mm film again with 3D, which I think that is best utilized for Star Wars. Matt, what do you think? Do you like uh, this idea of going back and using 65mm film for blockbuster movies? Sure. I mean, as you, as you, I mean, we've gone over this one a million times, so I'll be really brief here. Um, I think there's a place for digital. I think there's a place for film. And I think that if you can uh, make film work with today's special effects sensibilities and in that vein help out CGI to make it look, um, to make it stop looking so fake, <laughs> which I know has, has as much to do with um, the use in and of itself versus mats and what have you else as anything else. But um, if film can help you do that, then hey, more power to you. So I think it's um I think it's an exciting decision and I will eagerly anticipate its return and hopefully it will be awesome. Ooh. And that'll cream my news. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well that ends the news and brings us to Did It Age Well? Warriors come out to play. Warriors, come out to play. Warriors, come out to play. Warriors, come out to play. And this time on Did It Age Well, we are talking about the 1992 film Bob Roberts, yes, American-British satirical mockumentary. Uh, it's written, directed, and stars Tom, written and directed by, as well as stars, Tim Robbins. And basically, this is about the rise of a right-wing politician um, by the name of Bob Roberts, who's a candidate for a U.S. Senate election. And he is... Uh, uh, it, and. There And basically, it talks about his rise and eventual win in getting a Senate seat. Um, so the film in and of itself is... Uh, I, I, I first saw, actually first saw this movie back when I was about 16. I saw it um, on HBO, I think. And I sat down with my mom because my mom liked Tim Robbins. And uh, she thought this movie looked interesting so we looked down and it was a it was a decent movie I uh, chuckled in certain parts at the time I was not very uh, politically aware at the time 
And so didn't really understand the subtext of the movie and didn't really understand where the movie was coming from. Of course, I have since um, gotten much more of an education in that regard, so definitely understand where it's coming from. Um, the movie in and of itself is well acted and has uh, an interesting story. I Knowing more about what was behind it and what the idea behind it was and knowing more about Tim uh, Robbins as a whole um, has kind of shaped my uh, it, well it has informed my opinion in terms of the actual content of the movie itself. The story is good and the acting is fine and, and it definitely holds up now so I would say that this movie has aged well. Go ahead Tim, what do you got? I too agree. This movie does age I think incredibly well I think the reason why it does hold up so well is because Tim Robbins played the character straight. And he directed the movie like it was an actual documentary. And I think what's so ridiculous about it, and why it works so well as a comedy, is that we see people like this in politics. We see politicians just like this. But certain things, certain nuances... Uh, mannerism, well, not necessarily mannerisms, just certain nuances are enhanced for comedic pleasure, I suppose. But a lot of this is real. A lot of the, um, but we've seen like scandals like this, you know, like Alan Rickman's character, he, I feel it's called like Blackwater or something, something with water in it, something that dealt with the government and it was covered up. And so the documentarian and other people, or, or pointing that out, like, how could these people, how could this guy be polling so well when he has this scandal that's kind of looming over him, but yet he pulls so well? And, you know, so, like, little things like that are just played completely straight. And it's insane because you see this stuff happening. And I think, I think this movie, and I, I watched it before and after, uh, I watched it again this past week, but the first time I actually watched it was about... A little less than a year ago, so Trump was already full-fledged in his politicalness, and I was just amazed at how this character reminded me so much of him. And not necessarily, I, I think in some way, I think Bob Roberts is significantly uh, smarter than uh, Trump, if we're going to get a little bit political with this. But I, it was entertaining watching how Trump supporters were supporting Trump and how the Bob Roberts supporters were supporting Bob Roberts. And it just made this very interesting parallel that I just couldn't separate. <laughs> I just really couldn't separate either from one another. And so I, the, I just kind of really super connected with this movie because, yes, Tim Robbins becomes more of an outspoken liberal later on after this movie or actually not long after this movie but he kind of like he plays it centered he makes the characters centered like you know like you can believe in whatever you want but this guy is so bad and some people are so dumb to to support him and this is why you know and the movie kind of and that's kind of like what the movie shows you and Again, it's, the entire movie is played straight, and it just works so goddamn well, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And on top of it, this is like an SNL movie. This is a Lorne Michaels-produced movie, because Bob Roberts originally appeared on Saturday Night Live as a SNL character. That was created by Tim Robbins. So it's fully his, and I just thought he knocked it out of the park. The one thing that keeps this movie from being 100% timely, I suppose... I'm on IMDb trying to look up the guy's name. Uh, the uh, I think it's 
is it Bugs Raplin? Is that the character who is a part of the liberal? Yeah, it's uh, it's played by uh, Giancarlo Esposito or whatever from Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so the Bugs Raplin character, he is like, I mean, the equivalent to now is like somebody from like the Black Lives Movement or the equivalent uh, radical left newspaper that's trying to expose the radical right, you know, but that's the one character that is the only character in this film that is approached and executed as being over the top. And if that character was more like level minded and more down to earth, like a lot of the other characters, I think this movie would have been, I mean, watching it now, I think it would have been a reflection as to what is happening now, really. And that to me is my, the only downfall of the film is that particular character. And I'm not saying it's Giancarlo's fault. It's more likely Tim Robbins' fault because that's probably how the character was written. I guess his character is there to really show the stark contrast to Bob Roberts. But then again, with showing that stark contrast and making that contrast laughable and a little bit embarrassing to watch, it kind of defeats the purpose of the middle ground that I think Tim Robin that Tim Robbins is trying to convey, I guess, uh, with his political point of view. I don't know if I'm making sense. I am to myself, I guess, a little bit. But I guess what it comes down to uh, is that, yes, I do believe that Bob Roberts aged well. Please watch it. I'm very curious to know what all of you think about this movie. It is available on Netflix to stream. Well, next week we are going to be doing a Did It Age Well of 1965's Thunderball, uh, James Bond flick, versus 1983's Never Say Never Again, which is a uniquely storied um, update of Thunderball, um, where it's originally, I mean, it's kind of in the fold now due to a whole lot of things in terms of James Bond movies, but it's kind of considered the redheaded stepchild and non-canon James Bond movie, but it is a, an actual um, James Bond movie that was done by Sean Connery, as a matter of fact. So uh, that's what we'll be doing next week. And without further ado, I believe it is now time for the movies. Is it not, sir? Yes, sir. All right, folks, here we go. It's the movies. All right, we have got two movies for you this week. First movie is Arrival. Second movie is Deepwater Horizon. Which one would you like to start with first, sir? Since I think we're probably going to be getting into spoiler territory for sure with Arrival, maybe we should start with Deepwater Horizon. All right. Sounds like a plan. Uh, Deepwater Horizon 2016 American biopic disaster films directed by Peter Berg, and it stars an ensemble cast uh, consisting of Mark Wahlberg, Kurt Russell, John Malkovich, Gina Rodriguez, Dylan O'Brien, and Kate Hudson, amongst others. So, um, basically, this is simply the events that led up to, well, actually, I guess not necessarily led up to exactly, but the events that cover uh, April 20th, 2010, when uh, 
Deepwater Horizon uh, has a huge explosion, ultimately causes it to sink, and then we get tens upon tens upon tens upon millions of gallons um, of oil leaked into the ocean, and it is the largest disaster of its type in the world's history. And uh, and then, of course, telling the story of... Um, all of the uh, of all the people and how they were trying to get off the rig and who was trying to help them and what was happening on the mainland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all right, so this is a really simple movie. Um, it it doesn't try and paint anybody or BP or anything in, in any kind of um, overtly negative light. So it's not like kind of a you know propaganda movie or anything like that. It's just simply trying to tell what happened on that day and how the people who were there and had to deal with it did so. And, um, and from that standpoint, I think it's, you know, it is a very good human interest, uh, film in that regard. Also, something that I thought was really, really cool was that they really tried very, very hard to make the CGI in the movie work with the movie. And I think in large part, they actually succeeded. And for me, that was my biggest concern with this film. I was so worried that with the kind of movie that it was, there's just no way to, virtually no way anymore to not get around using a ton of CGI. And so, um, I was pleasantly surprised with that. And it makes, it makes the storytelling more compelling. Uh, overall, I think really the biggest, um, hindrance to this movie is, as with most ensemble movies, you just don't get a lot of characters development. And because of that, I don't want to say that they're wooden, but you, you, you really feel like it's just wasted potential overall, especially in some of the characters that you like. And for me, you know, love him or hate him wherever you land. I like Mark Wahlberg and I think he's overall a decent actor. Um, and I liked his portrayal of Mike Williams. So, you know, you have people like him. And of course I, I just love Kurt Russell to death, John Malkovich. And yet a lot of the, a lot of times I didn't, I couldn't just really nail down whether or not, whether or not I wanted more or less character development on the screen at that time. And it's because the characterizations are just kind of flat. And even when they do try to spring to life, it's a little wonky. And you know, that's a really big thing to try and overcome in ensemble casts. Um, and it just didn't work as well there. But still, great story, awesome special effects, 3.75 out of 5. What do you got, Tim? I thought this was a very good movie. Uh, it's directed by Peter Berg, uh, like what Matt said, stars Mark Wahlberg. It's made by the same crew, pretty much, who made Lone Survivor and the upcoming Patriot's Day, which is about the Boston uh, marathon bombings so it's a very character centric film you know it's very powerful it's very strong it's very moving and yet it's still it's a disaster film i'll tell you what this movie made me not ever want to go on an oil rig because if the real thing was maybe half as bad as what this movie depicted it to be the event that happened i don't want to be anywhere near it because goddamn, it looked terrifying after watching this movie, I was so impressed at the spectacle of it that I just I was wondering what kind of liberties that the filmmakers took when making the movie. Like, 
Did the real guy actually jump 10 stories from the burning platform into the ocean to save himself from burning to death? Or did this guy actually lose his sight for a while because he was in the shower and a blast blew through the shower wall and it knocked him through the air, flipping around and then hitting a mirror, causing him to crash down onto the floor and having to make his way through the hallways to actually find people to help him out? Just all these very dramatic things that I wanted to know, like, did this stuff really happen? And I found this one website, I don't have it in front of me, or I would uh, I, I would tell you about it, but I'm sure if you Google, you know, spot-checking Deepwater Horizon movie to the real thing, this one will probably come up. But it was in-depth, and it turns out that most of the stuff I questioned actually happened. And of course, some of it was dramatized a little bit more um, and to make it look more theatrical. But what the movie was conveying, you know, what was being conveyed on the screen happened in real life. The actual guy did have to jump 10 stories into the ocean to save himself from burning to a crisp. Uh, so-and-so did get knocked across the room by a door when it blew up in front of him. You know, just like all these little things that created grand disaster spectacle. You know, stuff that we would see in the 1970s disaster movies that we haven't seen since. All that actually happened. And it made the real story that much more terrifying, seeing it very close to actually what happened, it being depicted on screen. But there was one thing. That bothered me. There was one thing that I wasn't expecting, that I was not expecting to find on that website that actually said it didn't happen in real life. Turns out they they wrote it into the movie, and that was the inclusion of locating the dinosaur tooth fossil thingy. Uh, It turns out, you might remember this from the trailer, it's the one thing from the trailer I fucking hated, and I fucking hated it while watching the movie, to give a little emotional depth to the Mark Wahlberg dad character, he has this conversation with his daughter right before he leaves to go on assignment, uh, where she is supposedly doing a show-and-tell at her school about what their daddies do and she was going to talk about her dad and what he does for a living that he digs up old dinosaurs that have turned into uh the oil and stuff in the and you know within the earth and whatnot and so she said that she wants daddy i like literally not necessarily verbatim this is what she said but you know the, the gist of it was that daddy i want you to bring me a dinosaur tooth so I can tell my class that my daddy conquered the dinosaurs. And of course, all the women in the theater were like, oh, that's so cute, man. We, that, that is adorable. That's never going to happen, but that's adorable. And then a lot of us, you know, people like me are like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, no child's ever going to say anything like that. that it sounds so staged. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And then, of course, right before the, like, right before the disaster happens, some dude uncovers this, this dinosaur fossil tooth thing and gives it to Mark Wahlberg. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to show my wife that I found this for my daughter. And they're sky- he's Skyping with Kate Hudson. And all of a sudden, the devastation happens. And I just thought, Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, I call, I, I saw a, a mile away, man. I knew this was going to happen a mile away. It's too good to be true. And again, it turned out it was too good be, to be true. Completely made up. 
And if, honestly, I am spending most of my review time bitching about the inclusion of a little girl asking her daddy for a goddamn dinosaur fossil tooth, then this movie certainly isn't that bad. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think Peter Berg has become a tremendous director. Uh, This movie accomplished so many things on so many different levels. I do agree with Matt on virtually everything he said about the characters that I think some more human qualities need to be present. The spontaneous explosions just kind of overpower the human element of the film. And I wish the human element drove the movie more than the crazy disaster movie aspect. 4.5 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. Uh, If it's still playing near you, I highly recommend you check it out at a local movie theater. All right, well then, we will move directly to Arrival. 2016 American science fiction thriller films directed by Dennis Villanueva, and it, uh, it stars Amy Adams, Jeremy Renner, Forrest Whitaker, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Z Ma. We've got uh, 12 mysterious extraterrestrial spacecraft um, are positioned in 12 different spots around the world, and a linguist... <laughs> a cunning linguist is <laughs> uh, tasked by the military to figure out just exactly what it is these alien beings are trying to communicate. Um, and of course, in the process, you know, there's worldwide panic and, you know, can we figure out what's going on? Are Are these aliens bad or is it? the humans that are the problem all right so that's basically the gist of the movie um i found that this was that this movie um for those who listen to npr or you know something similar to that or might would know um i really felt like the music came from radio lab um for the most part when it wasn't actually scored music um and that I don't mean that in a good way because I generally like the quirky music that you find on Radio Lab. But uh, this movie suffers from a few different problems. The biggest problem is is that it doesn't understand its own pacing. Now it's not that the pacing in and of itself is bad. It's that the way the movie is cut, um, it prevents you from understanding everything that's going on because it was trying to unfold this thriller with this big existential question and stuff about, you know, what would happen if aliens really landed and things of that nature. Um, and it does take a global look at that, which is, again, cool. And, of course, it would have to, given the markets that we have today. Um, but in doing so, um, it it takes too long. And, I, and I'm not going to beat on this too much, but... You get a lot of the information to its credit. You don't get the whole movie. Um, but you get a lot of information from the trailer. And I don't mean like if you went out of your way to watch trailers. I mean the one that's in the movie theater um, that you you know would have caught within the last month um, that lets you understand at least where the movie's going. And so you're just sitting there going, okay, come on, let's get to it. Let's get to it. Let's get to it because let's get to the parts that we haven't seen because you've already set up the movie. And now the movie's trying, and when the movie goes in, it's taking forever to get there. So ultimately the movie is extremely slow. 
extremely slow. And then you get these brief little bursts of life, and then it goes back to being slow again because of the way that the movie is structured and cut. Um, the acting is very good all the way around, but unfortunately, the story itself is not strong. I feel it was based on a short story and I think that they were trying to use cinematography to tell the story. And this is not that kind of a movie. Um, this is a movie that because of its very nature depends on the writing and the writing itself is not strong. So you're just kind of left waiting for things to happen with these good actors. And it's really kind of wasted. Um, for the most part, the special effects are really, really well done. I just think that, again, they were wasted. Again, I think it was just wasted in the way that it was cut. Um, at the and and because we're going to have a spoiler section on this, I'm going to stop there. I feel that I felt that the movie was oddly scored. The music didn't help. Uh, for the most part, I felt it was very poorly cut. It's a weak story, not great writing, but really good actors, really good premise. Um, 2.25 out of 5. Just not that good of a film overall. Uh, where do you want to jump in there, Tim? I was definitely let down by Arrival. If you are genuinely interested in this film, I say go and see it. But keep an open mind. If you don't know already, Rival is not your standard by-the-books alien invasion flick. It's more cerebral and thought-provoking. Now, just how cerebral and thought-provoking is this movie? I'll just say I heard maybe... The theater was packed. I heard maybe five people... Uh, oddly enough, they were men. <laughs> five guys, grown men, uh, throughout the credits, said something along the lines of, to their wives, like... Honey, I'm going to need you to explain this to me on the way to lunch because this movie was way too damn cerebral. I wasn't really thinking of that, or I wasn't really expecting that. You know, just things like that. So you have to understand that it's it's more than just your standard invasion flick. There's a lot of thought to it. And this movie has possibly too much thought thrown into it. If you're a big Denis Villanueva fan because you really enjoyed Sicario or Prisoners, Arrival isn't like either of those two films. Now, if you were going to compare it to any of Denis Villanueva's other films, it's more in line with, I think, his 2014 film Enemy, which we reviewed last year, I think, for episode 118. Along with the gravitas and strong filmmaking that we've come to expect from Villanueva, his showmanship for thought-provoking cerebral cinema is definitely in the forefront with this film, Arrival. But unlike Enemy, which I've watched, I think, Enemy three times. Uh, It's available on Amazon still, I'm sure. Uh, Highly recommend it, but it's one of those movies where I didn't know anything about it going into it other than who was in it, Jake Gyllenhaal, and the director, who I love. And I wasn't expecting a thought-provoking film. You know, it's one of those movies where you watch it, you might not understand it, but you talk about it with people, or you do a little research about it online, and then you rewatch it and you pick up on things and you enjoy the movie that much more. And I think with repeated viewings, you just pick more up on the film and you understand more of what's actually happening. And I was able to watch that movie 
three different times within a few days because it piqued my interest. Now, Arrival, apparently, which will I'll go into more detail in the spoiler section, and I'm sure Matt will as well. With Arrival, it didn't pique my interest like Enemy did. I was just kind of left with, so this is where they're going with this movie, or just like it, oh, unlike Enemy where they just, the, the layers, they're just laying down all of these layers to the film, all these different themes, all these different what-ifs and interpretations that could be made. Arrival is just like a standard, like, we're going to lay down one level to this film, and I don't know if I'm supposed to look into anything or interpret anything or not. I just honestly don't care. I might watch this movie again. I, I, I don't know. I just don't know. I thought the performances were fine. I think the cinematography was fine. The pacing didn't bother me until I knew what direction this film was going into the last 20 minutes or so. But it's still a, you're, you're smarter than average sci-fi flick. So I give Arrival 3.5 out of 5. Excellent, excellent. All right, so I am going to sum up my spoilers as such. Okay? The actual plot device that is meant to hold the movie together is that time is not linear. Ergo... Once you unlock it with the key, the alien language, you're able to bounce back and forth between the present and future. This apparently is meant to work in memory form only, and perhaps really only for Louise, as the movie sets her up to be the savior of mankind. The movie makes the illusion that she could have changed her future, but she chose it anyway because she didn't want to miss out on the good that was to come to forego the bad. However, given that the movie was presented in such a fashion that it seemed like Louise was living as if her daughter had already died, I don't think she could have, even if she'd wanted to. For me... This is why the movie ultimately doesn't work. I'd be willing to buy that time is fluid if the outcome itself was fluid as well. But the movie basically attempts and fails, in my opinion, to trick you into thinking one thing so that it can, quote, you know, air quote here, surprise you um, with the ending. And that's it. You're sitting here waiting for this whole thing to happen. It's being presented purposely uh, instead of a more organic way to get you to buy into something that isn't supposed to happen the way it's supposed to happen. And I understand that she starts the movie with, I thought this was supposed to be a story about one thing. Eh, no. To me, it's a complete bait and switch. And if they hadn't done it that way, where she's already looking like she's living in this depressed world where she's given up on everything... In terms of love and, you know, she's just let this whole relationship beat her into the ground. Then, yeah, I would say, okay, fine, time's not linear. So then let's change it. Or certain things would add up to a way that would lead her to find the answer. But at the end of the, but the end, but at the end of the day, she's already trapped in this existence. So time in and of itself is not linear. So I'm not buying the way that the story was trying to work. I think I would like to go back and actually read the short story though. Um, just to see how the, how it worked in the source material. Um, and, and that's what it boils down to me, uh, for me. I, I just, it does not work and I appreciate what they were trying to do. And I, and again, I get the idea of what they're trying to do with time, not being linear, but it just did not 
execute at all. And I was bored out of my mind for most of the time. That's my that's my spoiler, sir. Ooh, I, you pulled a Tim and wrote down some juicy notes. Some, I did. Some creamy notes. I, I, I actually, did. I, uh, I meant, I meant to write down probably the most important part of my review of this movie. It, it might be a little choppier than my introduction of my non-spoiler section, but I, I've had mixed emotions in this film. The first half of it, I thought the movie was going a completely different way than the ending of the film, because automatically I just thought that she, you know, her daughter died. You know, at the beginning of the movie, I just thought her daughter died. She's moving on from it, and this is just the next stage of her life. And I thought at the end of the movie, somehow these these aliens and the empathy that she had toward these aliens was going to bring her closure. And in some ways, that would have been fine. But this movie, because it's trying to resonate more along the lines of enemy, it, it's, it's a, much more complicated than that. But it's not like complicated good like thought-provoking it's just like why why is it a semi-love story why is it semi-depressing like you know that your daughter is gonna get a horrible disease and die but yet you still decide to have that child and and you know your marriage is gonna crumble after you have a baby and yet you're still gonna marry the guy but the first part of the movie i thought it was very interesting how they handled and what i thought would be in a timely way which was how all the different countries react to the arrival of the aliens you see america interacting with everybody with japan with russia with the germans everybody in the uk and just everybody all around the world but certain people click and certain people work better together now which are the two countries that are going to band together and do their own things separate from the u.s and, and all the other blue countries of course that would be russia and japan of course they're going they're, they're going to be geared up for war and then you know the americans think that the russia and japan they're going to bomb one of these suckers and we have to be ready to retaliate and then of course the american government we're all just like ready for war then because we're, we're going to have to deal with the repercussions of russia and japan nuking trying to nuke one of these guys and so i thought that was very interesting like if this was going to happen because this movie is grounded more so in real life like i think these are going to be the things we're going to have to worry about more so than the actual aliens themselves because we all everybody has these arguments and have and and they have these dreams like aliens are going to come and they're going to see how we've wasted our existence and they're they're just going to want to take us over pretty much but a lot of people, we, we really don't think about, like, what will Russia do? What will the UK do? You know, what will the Japanese do? What will our government do? Especially under the presidency of Donald Trump. You know, what? how would he react to something like this? And I think that's more interesting to think about. And I think that is more timely than the path that this movie eventually ends up taking. I was doing a bit of research today, and I was kind of looking into what other people thought about this film. And believe it or not, there there are more write-ups about this movie, probably more so, I think, than Enemy, but maybe not as in-depth. People are, are super up their asshole about this film. I think people are looking into it a little too much. I think when a smart film comes around, 
like this, they give it a little too much credit and obviously and, and automatically hold it to certain standards. Some of the themes that people talk about the most that I found out was the theme of time, then that of empathy. I printed off two articles here. One of them is from Collider uh, entitled Arrival and the Power of Empathy, written by Matt Goldberg. That article obviously talks about the empathetic side of uh, the film's themes. Uh, and then the other article I came across was Open Channel. Let's talk about Arrival's biggest theme, written by Beth Elderkin, which pertains to the theme of time. And, and it's very interesting that I'm sure there were multiple ideas floating around Villanueva's script interesting subtext characteristics how can all this tie out and if you go back and rewatch the film will it make more sense you know and how, how can we make a movie like that but the movie has to have the draw the movie has to be interesting and the movie just has to work well and unfortunately again i really uh, don't have the time to go into these two articles that just because the movie might hint at something that is more complex and maybe even touch on it. I'm sure there are multiple things that I missed during my first viewing, but I don't think if I watch it again and try to pick it out, it's going to make any that much more of a difference is that just because, you know, a movie like this dabbles in it a little bit automatically doesn't mean that it, it succeeded at doing so. So when you go into this movie again, know what you're getting yourself into and keep your mind open, because I think that's really going to be the only way that certain people who are not familiar with Villanueva's other work like Enemy or films kind of like this, that's going to be really the only way I think you're going to find maximum enjoyment from it, if you do find enjoyment at all. Um, and yeah, that, that's really all, all I've got to say. Matt, would you like to make the last comment, or do you have any a response or anything like that? No. Um, I mean, I understand where you're coming from. I just, um, I, I just think it, I, I just think it, uh, did not, it was just not executed very well. So, um, that's why, again, I say I would like to compare it to its actual source material just to see if there was anything different in the, in the short story. So, and that whole bullshit of she can see in the future and that's how she, she's talking to somebody who apparently she ends up saving indirectly who then tells her exactly what she should be doing, you know, years before where she, mm-hmm. and what came first again, the chicken or the right. egg. Well, that's know? the whole point. That's the, and that's the whole point because it's trying to say that time isn't linear, but uh, yeah, it just was not, it was just simply executed poorly at any rate. So, all right. Well, I think we have definitely said all that we can say coherently and cogently about arrival <laughs> or as coherently as tim can <laughs> all right well here we go so that does bring us to the end of the movies and next week's films are going to be fantastic beasts and where to find them along with billy lynn's long halftime walk yes so i think that uh closes off everything except for the spiel does it not sir Spiel on. 
Alright, well the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio along with looking us up on SoundCloud. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Forrest Whitaker, I get to say this. In a lot of films, they're showing more complete, developed characters of diverse ethnic backgrounds. The larger concern is to be able to tastefully explore the stereotypes and still move past them to see the core of people. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>